0: audio ground school podcast. So a few weeks ago, we took a break from the online ground school content on these podcast episodes. We just did something fun, right? I talked about my favorite aircraft, the SR-71 Blackboard. I shared some crazy facts about it and a crazy cool story about it. And I got a lot of good feedback from that episode. So in light of that, I've talked about a podcast in the past that I recommend. I have a new one because so many people like that episode. I do want to stick mostly to our ground school content here to be valuable for people looking for that ground school content. Every once in a while, I might do an episode like that. But there's a podcast that is completely dedicated to these great tales in aviation. So I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a fun new podcast called So There I Was. If you're a fan of aviation or simply enjoy hearing captivating stories, then this is the podcast for you guys. Hosted by former marine pilots Fig and Repeat, this podcast shares first-hand accounts of flying experiences that will have you on the edge of your seat. Whether you're in the mood for something funny, scary, poignant, or tragic, this podcast has it all. With a relaxed and conversational tone, the pilots share their stories like you're sitting right there with them at the bar after a flight. Hear from fighter pilots, astronauts, blue angels, aircraft carrier captains, Navy and Coast Guard rescue pilots, and many more. Most have survived near-death experiences. Others have overcome incredible disabilities to continue to fly airplanes. You'll hear about heart-pumping moments in the cockpit, hilarious screw-ups during flights, insane hijinks off-duty, and the challenges pilots routinely face. Hear what it feels like to be shot off the bow of a carrier or into space. Experience the terror of landing on a pitching deck on a night so black that the pilot can barely taxi afterwards because Their legs are shaking so badly. Hear firsthand how lonely it is in the middle of the ocean in a life raft on a dark night in eight-foot seas. Each story is unique and told with a level of detail that will make you feel like you were there. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll laugh until you cry, but one thing is certain, you will not be bored. So there I was. It's all how great aviation tales begin. Go check out that podcast. I've listened to a few of their episodes already, and I got a few more downloaded for the next time I travel or I'm working out. And again, if you like that sr 71 podcast episode that we did, the really cool, awesome aviation stories, and you'd like, it can only get better if that story, instead of read by me, was read by the actual pilot that that story's about. And on this podcast, so there I was, that's what it is. They bring on the actual people and they tell their actual stories. Really, really, really cool thing. So go check that out should be on any podcast app. It's called So There I Was. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Audio Ground School podcast. I'm your host, Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. And this is the podcast where we go through the private pilot online ground school of Part-Time Pilot completely free for you guys in audio. So... In today's episode was episode number 64. I can't believe we've done this many episodes. It's crazy. We even have some extra bonus episodes. So it was probably more closer to like 70. Holy smokes. Anyways, we're going to finish off the section on Cross Country Planet. It's been a long section, a lot of long episodes, a lot of Detailed examples have been really, really great. So if you missed that, go back and listen to those episodes. But we're going to finish off the section with going over takeoff and landing performance today. We're going to do that lesson. We're going to tell you, you know, how to set up those calculations, how to use the charts in your POH or AFM, how to find the takeoff and landing distance, cross, how to find your crosswinds, calculate crosswinds, headwinds, all that stuff. The stuff that you'll need for those charts. So, yeah, stay tuned for that. First off, you know, if you've been listening, we do, we read off some reviews that we get on either, you know, trustpilot.com, search for part-time pilot, you can read our reviews or on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a review on there. We don't have any new ones. Now I'm kind of recording a few of these in a row. So I've kind of run out of some reviews and I don't want to read off reviews I've already read off. So we're not going to do that today. So we're just going to skip straight to the section or segment, I guess is the word. Skip straight to the segment on our listener questions or our student questions, right? So today, excuse me, I thought we had a good question, and this comes from the Part-Time Pilot Online Ground School study group on Facebook. It's a fantastic group. I'll put the link in the show notes for you guys. Join that, or you can just search under Facebook groups for Part-Time Pilot Online Ground School. And it's got a ton of great information and discussions in there. It's totally like you can even post anonymously. The one we talk we're gonna talk about today was posted by anonymous member. If you know you're scared to ask questions or whatever, there's no stupid questions. That's part of the rules. If I see anybody like talking, making someone feel bad about a question or giving snarky answers, it's just like, I hate that stuff. Right. We want to have a culture of learning in there. So that's what it's all about. And there's really a lot of great information in there. And that's where this question today comes from. Again, it's an anonymous post and that's totally fine. I don't care if you post anonymously as long as as you're posting relevant and good questions and no question is a bad question, but I could care less whether you say your name, show your picture or whatever. So this group originally started of just part-time online ground school students. Now we have opened it up to people who are also studying ground school wherever they are. It's all for ground school study, right? So they don't have to be a member of part time pilot. So this person says they got their ASA Part one forty one private pilot kit. So it's a kit of books there. They say after reading chapter one of the pilot ground school book, I feel like I'm reading a foreign language. Will this start coming more natural? I can fly with my eyes closed, but the terminology used is making me worry about the written exam. So I actually get this question a lot and because believe it or not, there's a lot of people that come to aviation and they come to our ground school or are interested in our ground school who have no experience in piloting or aviation at all. We actually do a pre-assessment test that students can take. It's completely optional, but we do that in our ground school. It's meant for people who have come from another ground school because we get that a lot too. People that already have experience in aviation or maybe they've done ground school in the past like 10 years ago and they, they never got their license so they got to do it again. Something like that. So that's what the pre-assessment is for to see kind of what knowledge you still have before you start and do all those lessons again, maybe you can, you know, skip some of the lessons because you have retained that information. So that's what it's for. But also I encourage anyone, even if you have no experience to take that pre-assessment and it's fun to see. And the reason why I do that is because it's fun to see their score because it's basically like an FA written practice test. It's fun to see their score then. And then after they do all our lessons, their score at the end. And it's, really cool because I think the average is like 20 to 30% grade on the pre-assessment. And then when they're doing their practice tests after taking our lessons, the average is around like 85 to 90%. So that's really cool to see, you know, everyone's growth through the ground school and after taking the lessons and stuff. And we had a couple students who had absolutely no aviation experience whatsoever, get like something like 9%. 11%, 10% on that pre-assessment, because it's just, like this person says, like a foreign language to them. There's all these acronyms, you know, mnemonic devices, these words, and that is true, especially in aviation and aerospace. There are so many acronyms. It's crazy. It really is like a foreign language, and they, you know, they say that when you switch industries, it really is like picking up a new language, and it can be a steep learning curve, so... One thing that we do at part-time pilot is we have one, we break down everything in simple words, right? We take the FARs, we take all these acronyms and stuff and we try to break them down into very simple, like fifth grade, sixth grade reading levels. That's like the key. I try and always make sure I don't use big words. I don't know too many big words, but you know, just really make, you know, for better lack of a better word, dumb it down because we all, benefit when things are dumbed down. It's true. Like it don't, don't take that the wrong way, but we all benefit when things are dumbed down because it's just easier to understand. So one thing we do with part-time we do simple English and then we also now have a mnemonic and acronym list. We have all the acronyms you're going to see in our ground school. We have a list of them and what they mean. So for example, like FAA, right? So someone's like, what's the FAA? Federal Aviation Administration. But that's just one example that comes to mind. There's a ton like ACSL, Alto Cumulus Standing Lenticular Clouds. Like if you saw ACSL, you'd be like, what the heck is that? All these different acronyms, we have a whole entire list. You can download it in your bonus course of the ground school. But also we have a list of the mnemonic devices that we have accumulated over the years. You know, some that are widely used in aviation and some that I've made up. I've actually made up quite a few because I think the more mnemonic devices we can have, the better, you know, because they really help. If you don't know what a mnemonic device is, it's like a rhyme or a little phrase or making something into an acronym that is an actual word. It's some sort of thing that helps our minds remember things easily. It crunches down a bunch of information into like one word or one rhyme. So, one common one is like tomato flames for the required equipment that you need for, you know, for flying, right? So for flying aircraft, the required equipment on an aircraft, so tomato flames or a tomato flames or whatever, that's acronym and each letter means something, right? It's like altimeter, tachometer or something. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head because I actually use a, a different one. I use a ACA FTSE and I explain why in the course because it, more ac- tomato flames actually doesn't have every single thing that you need. So I like Akka Footsie better. Anyway, so we have all those in there, plus the ones I made up. And then, you know, if any students find ones that we don't have in there, we add those in there as well. That document really helps our students. And we have that in their downloads course. Coast course get acquainted, especially the ones that are Free or new to aviation. I don't know why I said free. new to aviation and it's like a foreign language. This document really, really helps. And then also, you know, they can reach out and ask us at any point what these words mean. So I am actually giving that away for free with our free study guide. So now uh, we have a free study guide, which has... You know, just a bunch of information that you're going to need to know for the FAA written exam. It's a free PDF download. It's like 300 pages or more. So we have that. Plus, if you sign up for that the next day in your email, you'll get the free mnemonic and acronym list. And so if you want that, I'll put that in the show notes. It's parttimepilot.com forward slash free dash study dash download. So parttimepilot.com forward slash free dash study dash downloads. Again, I'll put that in the show notes. And I think this, because I've had this question so often that this is something I came up with, right? I was like, okay, I need to come up with an acronym list and a mnemonic device list so that it can really help these newcomers. So that's what I've done. That's what we've we've done. And we're making it free for everyone. So uh, go and check that out, especially if you're new to aviation. Okay, that's it. We're just going to do that one listener question, the one student question, and no reviews today. So let's get in to today's lesson on takeoff and landing performance. Quick recap of everything we've done in our cross-country nav log so far. It's basically pretty much complete, right? We chose our checkpoints. We then measured our courses on, you know, on our chart, our sectional chart. We measured the true courses. We measured the distances to each checkpoint. We got total cumulative distances. Then we found the variation for around our course, the magnetic variation, so that we could then convert our true courses to a magnetic course because we're going to need we're going to be flying based off magnets so that's what a magnetic compass so that's what we want for flight then we gathered winds and temperature for takeoff landing and cruise at all our altitudes and, and airports once we had that data we were able to do performance data because we need that temperature and wind to know how our performance is going to be so we are able to come up with the distance to climb and distance to descend. Then we were able to calculate airspeeds, like true airspeed for climb, cruise, and descent. Then with true airspeed, we were finally able to get ground speed and magnetic heading. Once we had ground speed and our distances, which we got way back when, we are able to calculate the time it takes to each checkpoint and our total time. Once we had their total time, we are able to combine that with a fuel consumption rate and figure out how much fuel we're actually going to use. And that's what we did in the last episode. So if you missed that, check that out. That was a good one. And then finally we're almost done, but we have to know what the wind conditions are going to be at when we take off and when we land. And especially if it's an unfamiliar airport, are we going to have, you know, how much margin are we going to have with the runway lengths? Are we going to be able have to clear any obstacles? all sort of that stuff and how long is it are we going to project to it'll take us to you know hit the ground stop and roll come to a complete stop with the current weather conditions and all that so that's what we're going to do today and so we're going to go over takeoff and landing performance and all that you need to know for that and how to calculate those so let's get started with takeoff and landing performance the final set of calculations for your cross-country planning will be using the takeoff and landing weights you calculated when you did the weight and balance calculations for your flight. If you haven't done that yet, now's a good time. You'll know how much fuel you need, all that stuff so you'll be able to accurately calculate that. Knowing your takeoff and landing distances are important for several reasons. One, it is important to determine if you'll have enough runway to take off or land and come to a full stop at your planned aircraft weight. Two. It is important to determine if you'll have enough runway at your planned aircraft weight and in the forecasted atmospheric conditions. Remember, a high-density altitude, altitude corrected for non-standard atmospheric conditions, is akin to flying at higher altitudes where the air is less dense and your aircraft has less performance. Less performance in both lift and propulsion means it will take longer to take off. Also take longer to land because the decreased density affects the true airspeed, which affects the ground speed, by increasing it. So it takes longer, actually increases your ground speed when you have a higher density altitude. So it actually increases how long it'll take you to land. A higher ground speed means you need more time and distance to come to a full stop. Therefore, it is critical that you know when you are flying out of or into an area with high density altitude so that you can ensure you'll have enough runway. Finally, it is important to determine if you'll have enough runway and distance to clear any obstacles near your runway. The combination of high density altitude, a heavy aircraft, and nearby obstacles can be very dangerous if not properly accounted for. Again, we will use the performance section of the Approved Flight Manual, or POH, for your aircraft. For We're going to focus mainly on using the Piper Cherokee Warrior because that's the plane I fly. It should be very similar, you know, for a Cessna or other common trainer aircraft. They might not have a chart. They might have a table instead, but the concepts are all pretty much the same. You're going to need to, you know, know whether you have a headwind and how much of a headwind. You're going to need to know the temperature and your pressure altitude so that you can determine your density altitude and your performance and all that stuff. You're still going to need to know all the same information, no matter what, whether it's a chart or table or whatever aircraft it is you're using. And that information is going to be in your approved flight manual or POH. So for the Cherokee warrior, there are six total charts of interest to us. There's four for takeoff and two for landing for takeoff. You will see two separate charts with no flaps or zero flaps and two separate charts with two notches of flaps or 25 degree flaps. For landing, both charts are assumed full flaps in the landing configuration, so there's only two charts, because they they're just they both for full flaps, whereas takeoff, right, you have uh, two notches of flaps or zero flaps. Here's a summary of what each chart is used for and how to distinguish between them. So one chart is called Zero Degree Flaps Takeoff Ground Rule. This chart is used to determine the distance needed on the ground to be able to lift off while using no flaps. So, again, This chart is used to determine the distance needed on the ground to be able to lift off while using no flaps. This is used when you have no obstacles near your runway. This is the horizontal distance from the very start of your takeoff roll to the point where your wheels leave the ground. So that's important to know what the actual distance is. So as soon as, uh, you know, they say you're clear for takeoff and you start rolling on that runway on the center line, that's the point where you start measuring this distance. And as soon as your wheels lift off the ground, that's the end of the measurement of this distance. So that's zero degree flaps takeoff ground roll. Then you have zero degree flaps takeoff performance. So instead of ground roll, it's called takeoff performance. This chart is used to determine the distance needed to be able to lift off from the ground and reach above 50 feet of altitude while using no flaps. I'm not sure why they don't talk. Why don't why they don't say zero degree flaps to clear 50 foot obstacle. I don't know why I don't call it that, but they call it zero degree flaps takeoff performance. And this is used when you have an obstacle near the end of your runway. You can find out about nearby obstacles and their heights in the AFD chart supplement on your terminal area chart for the area. So this is some information you're going to need to gather. Just like we gathered weather information, temperatures, and winds, you're going to need to Look up the chart supplement for the airport you're landing, all the airports you're landing at and taking off for, and you're going to need to know not only the runway distances of all the runways and have this in your kneeboard, but especially the one you expect to land on with the winds. But you also want to have all, all this information because the winds can change, and they can change. They have multiple runways. The ATC can change, or even if it's uncontrolled, and you see the windsock is at it blowing from a different direction than you expected before, you're going to want to land into the wind, and so you might change the runway that you planned to land on. So you need to know, you need to be prepared to switch runways and have all the runway distances. You also want to know for each runway, are there any obstacles at the takeoff end or the landing end on either end that you're going to need to clear either when you come down for landing or you want to take off. So this is... So that's what you need if you have an obstacle like that. So if you look it up in the chart supplement, AFD they used to call them. If you look it up and you find that there is an obstacle, maybe some trees, maybe some train, maybe a house or a crane or, you know, those are common type of obstacles kind of near the runway. They'll point it out in there in the chart supplement and they'll tell you where it's located in relation to which runway and you'll know, okay, there is an obstacle I want to use this chart, I want to use a takeoff performance chart because I do have an obstacle on that runway. So, what is this distance? Well, this distance is different than the takeoff ground roll, where takeoff ground roll was as soon as you started your roll to when your wheels lift off. Takeoff performance is as soon as you start your takeoff roll, so the start is the same, but the end of it is when you get to that 50 foot obstacle. So, wherever that 50 foot obstacle is, that's the distance. Okay, so And we have a picture that shows this, okay? So we have an aircraft, you know, rolling down the runway and then we have an obstacle, we have a 50 foot tree and we show, you know, the aircraft clearing that and we show the two distances, the takeoff ground roll and the takeoff distance to clear that 50 foot obstacle or the takeoff performance, right? So we show that here in the ground school, go ahead and check that out. It's a good visual of what we're talking about. Then for takeoff, we also have 25 degree flaps, takeoff ground roll, same exact thing, just with 25 degrees of flaps. So, again, it's the ground roll, so that distance is the same as the start of your ground roll when your wheels lift off. And then we have 25 degree flap takeoff performance. So, again, same thing as before. It's the distance from when you start rolling to that 50 foot obstacle. That's the distance we're talking about here. Just, it's calculated with assuming you have 25 degrees of flap. Alright, then for landing again, we mentioned we have two different types of charts. We have landing distance this is how Piper Cherokee Warriors do it. It's Kind of annoying, but they have one called landing distance and one called landing ground roll distance. So they got rid of the performance and and they don't say 50 foot obstacles and all that stuff. So it's kind of annoying. Anyways, landing distance. This chart is used to determine the distance needed to land and come to a full stop over a 50 foot obstacle on a paved level and dry runway using maximum braking and full flap. So again, that is key as well. You wanna make sure your runways are paved, level, dry, all that stuff because if they're not, then these numbers can change a little bit. And your POH or AFM can tell you some estimations of how these numbers will change and how you can adjust. And there's actually an FA written question that kind of tests your ability to adjust these things when it's not paved or it's not dry. Because when you break on a wet runway, right, it's going to take you longer, or if it's gravel or something like that, it's going to be, or dirt. I don't think you'd want to land on a gravel runway unless you have to. But anyways, you get what I'm saying. So landing distance chart, that's Distance to come to a full stop over a 50-foot op- obstacle. So you're coming in, you have to stay above that 50-foot obstacle, and then you come down to descend and come to land. So this is the horizontal distance measured from the 50-foot obstacle to your final stopping point, where you come to a complete stop and your wheels start, stop turning. Then you have the landing ground roll distance. And so th- that's one way to remember these, right? Ground roll distance, that's from... When your wheels are on the ground, it's literally just the time, the distance your wheels are on the ground, just like takeoff. It was from your wheels start rolling to when they lift off on landing it's from when they first touch down to when you stop rolling. So that's the landing ground roll distance. This chart is used to determine the distance needed to land and come to a full stop on a paved level and dry runway using maximum braking and full flaps. Essentially no 50 foot obstacle here. Okay, again, we have a picture of that and the two differences of the distances and what they look like with that 50-foot obstacle and coming to a complete stop, again, in the ground school. Okay, so no matter which charts you are using, the procedure to determine the distance is all the same. So determine whether or not you will need to clear, so again, no matter which chart, they're all the same. It's just about figuring out which chart you'll need, and that, again, is going to be determined by the runway you're landing on and whether there's obstacles or not. So determine whether or not you will need to clear an obstacle on takeoff and landing. If you do not need to worry about an obstacle, record the runway lengths for the runways planned to use for takeoff and landing. Also record any backup runways in case you are not able to land or take off at your planned runway. If you do need to worry about an obstacle, determine the distance the obstacle will be from the start of your runway for takeoff and at the end of your runway for landing. So. If there is an obstacle, you want to know how far away that obstacle is. Right. And you want to know, you know, because you're, you're going to compare once we calculate this distance. If you have an obstacle, we're going to calculate you know, that performance distance over that obstacle. So you want to know how far away that obstacle is from the start or end of those runways. Right. So we're going to compare that to that information and see if we have enough space once we calculate the performance. Chart supplement AFD for your airport will tell you the location and distance again, in terms of direction from the airport on a compass rose of the obstacle from your runway. If the AFD or chart supplement is not helpful for you, you can call the airport during operating hours or use Google Maps satellite imaging if you can. So I do Google satellite imaging when it's a new airport. It's a brand new airport that I've never landed. at, I really check out to see, you can even do the 3D effects, you know, and you can place, you can do the street view and all that. I really get a good look and familiarize with myself with it. The text in a chart supplement should have all this information, but it's good to just, just check to make sure. Always, again, be conservative. If the chart supplement doesn't talk about an obstacle, but you see something on Google satellite imagery, like some trees, You just want to be careful and so you're like, okay, well, there are some trees. They don't talk about it. But you know what? I'm going to plan for clearing a 50 foot obstacle anyways, even though chart supplement doesn't talk about it. Here is the procedure to calculate your distances. You want to find the temperature. So again, this is the temperature at the airport around the time of your landing that you'll find in a forecast in degrees Celsius along the bottom axis on the right side of the chart. This is the temperature at the airport you are calculating for. Draw a vertical line up from this temperature until, and sorry, I said right side of the chart, I meant left side of the chart. Again, we're talking about Piper Cherokee Warriors. Draw a vertical line up from this temperature until you reach the pressure altitude of your runway. Remember, pressure altitude is not elevation. You will need to convert the elevation of your runway. To a pressure altitude as we did before using the equation pressure altitude equals elevation plus 1,000 times a quantity of 29.92 minus your actual altimeter setting or expected altimeter setting during that time. You can also use the chart in the FAA Airman testing supplement. It has density altitude and also has a pressure altitude correction factor. Or you can use this equation which gives you a pretty dang good estimation. From your pressure altitude, draw a horizontal line to the right. So we found the temperature, we drew a straight line up to the pressure altitude. Now we're drawing a horizontal line to the right of the chart, draw it until you meet the vertical reference line at the far left boundary of the weight section of the chart. So the next kind of section in the middle of the chart is going to be it's going to have an X axis on the bottom for weight of your aircraft. And on the far left of that section is going to be a reference line. So draw that line so you reach that reference line and stop right there. Find your aircraft weight on the bottom axis of this middle weight section of the chart, and then we're going to, again, draw a vertical line all the way up that chart from our weight. So the actual weight we expect on takeoff or landing. So if we're taking off, that's going to be like our full weight, right? If we're landing, then that's going to be our landing weight. We're going to That's going to differ from our takeoff weight by the amount of fuel that we've burned. And we know that. We know how much fuel we're expecting to burn, so we can calculate that. Again, fuel is six pounds per gallon, so if we burn, if we expect to burn 20 gallons, six times 20 is 120 pounds. So we know we're gonna be 120 pounds lighter when we come into landing. So that's the weight we would use for landing. So we find that weight, we draw a vertical line all the way up. At the intersection of the horizontal line drawn previously and the weight section reference line, so remember we drew that horizontal line and then we stopped when we got to the weight section at that first reference line we're now going to draw a line parallel to the sloping line nearest the intersection so in this middle chart you're gonna see for the weight you're gonna see these diagonal downward sloping lines from that start at this reference line at the beginning of the weight section and go to the end of the middle weight section and they slope downwards. and so what we're gonna do is where our horizontal line from before met that reference line we're gonna start there at that intersection point and follow parallel to the lines above and below us, those diagonal downward sloping lines, we're gonna follow that until we run into the vertical line we just drew at our weight, okay? And then now we have a new intersection point, right? We have the weight with this downward sloping line that we just drew parallel to the other line. So for example, if your aircraft weight was expected to be 2,100 pounds at takeoff, you would have drawn a vertical line up from 2,100 then you would draw a line matching the slope of the pre-drawn bold slope line from the point where your horizontal line intersected the pre-drawn weight section boundary line or reference line to the vertical line drawn up from your aircraft weight of 2,100 pounds. At this new intersection of lines, draw another horizontal line again to the next boundary line of the next section. So we're moving towards the right in this chart. There's a section at the start, there's the, then the middle weight section, and then there's section to the right of the weight. And so that section starts with another reference line. Again, we want to draw a horizontal line from our intersection in the weight section to that line, and we want to stop there. Now we're going to find on this new section, it is a section for headwind or tailwind. And so the bottom axis has wind velocity for headwinds or tailwinds. And we want to find our headwind or tailwind number. and again, we should always be taking off or landing in a headwind. So hopefully this is a headwind for you. Uh, so we'll find our value for our headwind that we expect, our headwind component, on that x-axis in that third that third section that we're in. and we'll draw a vertical line just like we did for weight. We found the weight, we drew a vertical line. So we're going to do that for our headwind. Now, So actually let me let me take a a second and tell you how you might be wondering how do we find how do we know if we're a headwind or a tailwind? How do we find our headwind or tailwind? So if wind direction is within plus or minus 90 degrees of your runway direction, then the wind is a headwind. Otherwise it's a tailwind. So for example, if the runway I'm landing on is 270 and the wind is from 360, right? So or zero degrees that's 90 degrees from 270. That's exactly 90 degrees. So that would be a direct crosswind. But anything less than that, let's say the wind is from 350, that's 80 degrees difference from the direction we're landing at 270. So that's less than plus or minus 90 degrees. So it's either 90 degrees to the right of us or 90 degrees to the left of us. Anything less than that, that we're going to have a headwind component. You know, If the wind's coming from 270, that'll be a full headwind component, but anything between 270 and 0 or 270 and 180, anything in between there, we're going to have a headwind component and a crosswind component. If it's past 0 or past 180 degrees to the left, we're going to have a tailwind component. And we don't want that. We want a headwind component. So you want to pick a runway direction that is into a headwind. So that's kind of how you tell to find the headwind component, we want to find the angle between the runway magnetic direction and the wind magnetic direction. So again, reason why I emphasize magnetic is because we usually get wind information when we're flight planning. Remember, if it's written, it's true. So when we get it from forecasts and we read it from a forecast, if you read it, it's true. So if we read from a forecast, the wind, that's in terms of true direction, but our runway directions, that are listed on the runways, right? Like runway 27, runway 14, those are in terms of a magnetic direction. So if we know we're gonna be landing on runway 14, that means we're gonna be landing in a magnetic direction, a magnetic course of 140. Okay? So we can't compare our wind direction to that magnetic direction that we're landing in or of our runway because. They don't match. The two directions are wrong. So we have to convert our winds to magnetic as well. And the way we convert, again, from true to magnetic for any direction is with variation. So the magnetic variation in our area near this airport is found on isogonic lines on our sectional charts. So we'll find that isogonic line closest to the airport, and it'll say the variation. Again, east is least. If it's If it has an E after it, that means it's negative. So we'll subtract it. If it's a west variation, then it's positive. So we'll add that. So for going back to our example, if we have, let's say we have wind from 210 that we read from a forecast, so we know they're in terms of true direction, and we have a variation of 10 degrees west, that means we take 210 plus 10 degrees to get 220. So now our wind is from 220 magnetic. And now we can compare that to our runway direction of 140. So then you would find the difference between our wind direction and our runway direction once they're both in terms of magnetic. And you might be wondering, why do we have to do all this work? Why is wind direction true sometimes and magnetic sometimes? Well, when you're flying and you ask for the winds from ATC, they're going to give it to you in terms of magnetic. It's only in terms of true when you read it from a forecast. But when you're flying, they'll give it to you in magnetic so you don't have to do this conversion you have winds and magnetic you know your landing or takeoff direction in terms of magnetic so everything's in magnetic when you're flying so you don't have to do this when when you're flying which which helps. Alright so let's do an example. If the runway let's do another example if the runway to be used is 10 degrees magnetic so it's runway one and the wind direction is three three zero magnetic then the angle between the two would be forty. So how do you come up with that? Well, right. The compass rose circle ends at 360. That's also our zero point where it starts again. So 330 to 360 is 30 degrees. Then we go another 10 degrees total of 40 degrees, right? So one way to think about this is if you wanted to just subtract, always subtract the larger number from the other number, you can just keep. You can make 10 degrees, 370 degrees, right? Because it's essentially the same thing. You get the three six zero you keep going that's essentially three seven zero then you can go three seven zero minus three three zero that would give you forty degrees however you like to think about it you know there's different ways to do it just remember that it starts over at zero and so you can do three six zero minus three thirty is thirty plus another ten you can do it that way as well all right so then we want to determine if it's a headwind or a tailwind so obviously if it's less than 90 degrees difference then it's a headwind and that's what we want so In this example, we had a difference of 40 degrees, so we're going to have a headwind component and a tailwind component. If the difference was zero degrees, it would be a complete headwind. If the difference was 90 degrees, either to the right or left, it'd be a complete crosswind. If it was greater than 90 degrees, it would be a tailwind and we'd want to pick a different runway. Okay, so how do you calculate the headwind or tailwind component? Well, the way I like to do it is I like to use a simple trigonometry, trig, function of cosine. So there's sine, cosine, tangent. If you use cosine, you can just do the wind speed. So we want to take the wind speed. So let's say in this example, the wind was from 330 magnetic at 10 knots. So we take that wind speed and we multiply it by the cosine of the angle between the runway and the wind. So again, in the example, the angle between the runway and the wind was 40 degrees. So we just take the cosine of 40 degrees and then times that by the wind speed, and that gives us our headwind or tailwind component if it was a tailwind. But again, we always wanna fly in a headwind, so you should only be calculating this for a headwind because you should have picked a runway that gives you a headwind. Anyways, if cosine or sine scares you, don't let it. It's really simple. You can literally go into the Google search bar and you can do 10. So in this example, right, the wind speed of 10 times, then type in COS. Then open parentheses, and in this example we're going to put the the angle between the runway and the wind which is 40 degrees. 40, and then just put DEG to make sure it's degrees. If you don't, it's going to assume it's something called radians. So you just want to make sure that it knows the units of what you're putting in there. So 10, 40 degrees. So you put COS, open parentheses, 40 DEG, close parentheses, and hit enter in Google search. And it'll tell you the answer. It's going to take the cosine of 40 degrees, and then it's going to multiply that by 10. You can also do this on any, any calculator, even your phone's calculator as well. If that still drives you crazy because you're not a math person, I totally understand that. There is a FAA figure that helps you use a graph to convert uh, to find your crosswind or your headwind. Okay, so uh, you can just use that. I can't remember the figure number, but it's in the FAA. Airman testing supplement that you use for the FA written exam that we have downloads for in our bonus course. And during our introduction lessons, we have you download that because something you'll want to get used to if you're preparing for the FA written exam. All right, so there's a third way to do it. And this is really helpful for flying if you don't want to look at a chart or do trigonometry while you're flying. And that is to make a table, a quick reference table. And luckily, part time pilot has done that for you. Another thing in your bonus downloads course. So, if you just go to my courses and look for your bonus online ground school downloads and video vault course, so that's going to have all our live lessons, webinars, bonus content, and a bunch of downloads, including our ultimate private pilot test prep book PDF, our cross country planning ebook, and it's going to have like nav logs you can download, and even it's going to have a crosswind and headwind quick reference chart. It's literally just a table, and you just find difference between your runway direction and the wind is and you just literally match them together and find where those match almost like a winds aloft table and boom you can just right there you can just pick it out you did no math no chart nothing so those are really really handy I use those to put them in my kneeboard when I fly because it makes it a lot lot quicker so go and check those out okay going back our procedure we're on that chart where we've gotten to the reference line of the last section of this chart that is for headwinds or tailwinds. And we just calculated our headwind. Again, we always want to first make sure we're picking a runway that gives us a headwind, and then we'll calculate what the headwind component is using the methods I just discussed. Then we're going to draw a curve matching the slope of the pre-drawn slope lines, again, just like in the weight section, but for the wind section. So we're going to go from the intersection of our horizontal line in the weight section to that start of the wind section at that reference line we're going to start there at that intersection and we're going to follow the headwind or the tailwind again we should use headwind unless you're forced to land in a tailwind then you might have to do that but whichever one we're going to follow the so the tailwinds go what are they the tailwinds go up so they have sloping lines up because they increase your distance for takeoff, right? And the headwinds go down because they, are sorry, tailwinds increase your distance to takeoff. You know, that's one of the reasons why we don't want to uh, take off in a tailwind. And then headwinds decrease that distance for takeoff and landing because you're flying into the wind, right? So you have a slower ground speed. So that's that's why we, we do that. Anyway, so the, the headwind lines are going to be sloping down, tailwind lines are going to be sloping up. So we follow so again, if we, let's assume we have a headwind. We'll follow the closest parallel to the closest line from our intersection point all the way to the vertical line we drew at our wind speed. So again, remember at the x-axis on the bottom, we found our wind speed for headwind, our horizontal component for our headwind. Maybe I skipped this, but after we calculated our headwind component, we found that wind component on that x-axis of the wind section. We found it at the bottom of that axis, and we drew a vertical line all the way up. From that, so if we yeah. have 10 knots headwind component, find 10 on that x-axis at the bottom. Draw a vertical line all the way up. Then that enables us to, when we're starting at the reference line, following parallel to that headwind, the closest headwind line, will eventually run into this vertical line. From there, from this intersection point, we finally draw one more horizontal line. From this intersection point, we draw straight horizontal to the far right end of the chart. That's gonna put us on the y axis on the far right of the chart, which is labeled takeoff ground roll or landing ground roll, whatever chart you're using in feet. And that is, you simply just read off the value of where that horizontal line meets that axis. And that's gonna be your answer for whatever it is takeoff, landing, distance. And then you're gonna record what this is in your Navlog or somewhere in your kneeboard. Then we're gonna compare this distance with what is available at your expected runway. If this distance is longer than the distance to the end of the runway or obstacle, then you'll need to pick a new runway or fly lighter or fly on a day when the density altitude is less. Again, this also comes into the fact of personal minimums. Let's say you have 5,000 feet of runway and it's gonna take you 4,990 feet to take off or land. For me, that would not be enough cushion. That would not be enough margin to do that. I would drop weight, find a new runway, a longer runway, or fly on a day that's not as hot or not as humid and has a less density altitude so that I would have a bigger margin. This is another personal minimum thing that you need to have. There's no FAA requirement for this. This is all about knowing your aircraft and having personal minimums to keep yourself safe. So for me, I would want at least... 500 to a thousand feet of buffer. I'd probably say a thousand feet so that you can come to a full stop, but I know that there's some pilots out there that like, you know, that short takeoff and landing type of skill and challenge. So if that's you, then, you know, that, that's okay. It's up to your choice. There's no FA requirement for it, but that's just how I do things. All right. So that is the procedure. We have a video of this, which includes how to calculate the headwind components or the crosswind components, also good while you're calculating the headwind component to just calculate your crosswind component so you know what to expect for crosswind. Once you get to takeoff or landing, you're going to want to get the actual winds and kind of compare that against what you expected, right? And if it's vastly different, you need to know if you're going to be coming in to a crosswind or headwind or a tailwind, you might want to change runways. But you can always plan and then change your plans accordingly. Okay, so we have a lot of examples here in the ground school lesson. Now, on the podcast, because we're already running to like 50 minutes, I'm just going to do a couple of these. But in the ground school lessons, I'll record some bonus audio and I'll do all of the lessons in audio for our ground school members. But okay, so let's do a couple of these for you guys. So takeoff and landing distance calculation example. For this example, we are going to assume that there is no obstacle for either our takeoff or our landing, and our takeoff will be a normal takeoff. In other words, no flaps needed. Therefore, we will use the zero flaps takeoff ground roll chart for our takeoff performance calculations and the landing ground roll distance for our landing performance calculations if we were to do those. In order to make these calculations, we will need a certain amount of information for our takeoff airport. We will need the forecasted ground temperature the runway elevation, the runway direction, the forecasted altimeter setting, the forecasted winds, and our expected aircraft takeoff weight. We will then need to use the elevation and altimeter setting to calculate the pressure altitude of the runway. We will need to use, and we will need to use the forecasted winds and runway direction to calculate a headwind or tailwind component. So how do we do this? Let's consider we are taking off in a Piper Cherokee Warrior with a total takeoff weight of 2,157 pounds. From runway 27. Again, that's a magnetic direction of 270 with an elevation of 627 feet and a forecasted temperature, altimeter setting, and surface winds for our takeoff of 24 degrees Celsius, 30.00 inches of mercury, and winds at 240 at 13 knots. And those are going to be winds in terms of, let's see if I did these in magnetic. Yes, I did these in terms of magnetic. Okay, so we got the information we need. Now we got to start calculating some things. So to summarize, our aircraft takeoff weight is 2,157 pounds. Our winds, in terms of magnetic, are 240 degrees at 13 knots. Runway elevation of 627 feet. Runway direction of 270 degrees magnetic. Temperature of 24 degrees Celsius. Altimeter setting of 30.00 inches of mercury. We can calculate the pressure altitude of this runway using the equation pressure altitude equals elevation plus 1,000 times the difference between 29.92 and our altimeter setting. So if we do that, we do 29.92 minus 30.00, we get negative 0.08. We multiply that by 1,000. That gives us negative 80. And then we add a negative 80 to our elevation of 627. That gives us a pressure altitude of 547 feet. And we can calculate a headwind or tailwind component using the angle between the wind direction and our runway direction. We just need to make sure that both directions are in terms of the same reference. In other words, they both need to be true directions or magnetic directions. Runway directions are in terms of magnetic, so I usually put my wind direction into magnetic as well. Again, by adding the value of the nearest isogonic line from my sectional chart to the true wind direction in order to get it in magnetic. Once we have this angle, we can find the headwind or tailwind component using the following simple trigonomic equation. And again, this is my preferred way to do it. And again, we already have our winds in 240. We just assume our winds are in magnetic already. But if they weren't, again, we would have to add or subtract the variation. So our wind direction is 240. Our runway direction is 270. So that's a difference of 30 degrees. So for Flying into 270 or we're taking flight. Yeah, we're flying into the direction of 270. Our winds are going to be to the left of us from 240, 30 degrees to the left. So we're going to have a headwind component and a crosswind component. So to calculate that headwind, or we take the wind speed times the cosine of the angle between our runway and wind. So we just do 13 times a cosine of 30 degrees. Again, make sure that's in degree unit of degrees, not radians. When we do that, we get 11.25 knots So our headwind component. For a wind, when we're taking off at 270 runway, when we have winds of 240 at 13 knots, we get a headwind component of 11.25 knots. Now we have all the information we need to use to take off performance charts. And again, if you wanted to calculate the crosswind using uh, the trig functions, instead of cosine, just use sine. Do the same thing, just use sine. So 13 times sine of 30 degrees, that'll give you the crosswind component. That's why I like using it. It's just... Real simple and easy, as long as you understand what you're doing. Okay, so now we have all the information. So 2,157 pounds of takeoff weight. Wind's 240 at 13, magnetic. We have a headwind of 11.25 knots. Our runway elevation is 627. Runway direction is 270, magnetic. Temperature, 24 degrees. Altimeter setting, 30.00 inches of mercury. And our pressure altitude of 547 feet. So now we can use our zero flaps takeoff ground roll chart. And in the ground school, we have a step by step, every single step. We have step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, step six, all the steps and red lines clearly visible on top of the chart, showing you exactly where we're going to on this chart to get our final answer. Just to briefly go over the procedure again, we find our temperature of 24 degrees, we draw a vertical line up to our pressure altitude. From that intersection, we draw a horizontal line to the right to our weight section reference line. We stop there. We draw a vertical line from our weight on the lower axis. Then we go back to the, refer- the intersection of our horizontal line and our reference line. We follow those downward sloping lines in the weight section parallel to our vertical line for weight. From that intersection, we draw another horizontal line to the next reference line which is going to be at the start of the wind section. Then we look at the wind axis and we find our headwind component of 11.25. So about 11 knots. We draw at 11 knots, we draw a vertical line straight up. We go back to the intersection of our past horizontal line and our reference line for wind. We start there and we follow the downward trending headwind lines. We follow parallel to the closest one until we reach that vertical line for 11 knots at that intersection. We draw, our last horizontal line over to the right. And we, from there, we read off our ground roll distance, which is about 900 feet. So from, from the picture in the ground school, again, if you're not in there, I highly recommend checking that out. It's a step-by-step breakdown of, of what we just did. We read that it's going to take approximately 900 feet to take off in our aircraft at the stated weight elevation and atmospheric conditions. So we're gonna compare this with the actual runway length to ensure that there is plenty of distance for us to take off. So if we take off near the start of most runways, most runways are gonna be much longer than 900 feet. So that's good if we, so as long as we take off, start of the runway, even if something, if we have to abort near almost to where we're lifting off, we'll have plenty of distance to stop. So that is good, that's a good thing. And again, we have a video showing all this, which I'll put in the show notes for you guys cause I'm nice like that. So we'll put that video in the show notes. The next example is for land, same thing, but landing performance. I'm going to do that example for our ground school members, but let's skip to a, so we have a couple more uh, examples of these for takeoff and landing performance, but let's skip to one where you might see it on the FA written exam. Now, again, the FA written exam is doing less calculation type questions like this, but These ones are a little bit simpler, so they're getting rid of any ones with interpolation or where you have to do multiple steps. Not quite sure if this one counts as that and still getting feedback from students. I haven't heard of students being tested on this, but we're still going to teach it. Again, this is kind of how other aircraft charts do it. They do it in this table format, so it's good to learn no matter what. So let's do an example here using a chart you might see on the FA written. So it's a table and it has a Just one gross weight, it tells you your ground roll or your distance to clear a 50 foot obstacle for different temperatures and pressure altitudes. So it has sea level and 50 degrees Fahrenheit, 2,500 feet and 50 degrees Fahrenheit, 5,000 feet and 41 degrees Fahrenheit, and then 7,500 feet and 32 degrees Fahrenheit. But then there's some notes and it says, decrease the distance shown by 10% for each four knots of headwind. So that's note one. So, again, if we have a headwind, that's how we correct for this on this type of table. Increase the distance by 10% for each 60 degrees of Fahrenheit temperature increase above standard. Again, so we would increase our distance if the temperature is really high, because again, it, higher density altitude means our performance is less. And then for operation on a dry grass runway, increase distance, both ground roll and total to clear physical obstacle by 20% of the total to clear the fifth foot obstacle figure. So there's a couple notes, and these notes are key on these types of questions. To correctly answer a question like this, using one of these figures, you need to make sure you're looking at the correct column, possibly interpolating interpolating correctly when you need to. But again, on the F.A. written, they're not doing interpolations before, but if this was real life and you're using a table like this, you would need to interpolate. And do not forget to read the notes listed below the data. So here's an example. Find the landing distance to clear a 50-foot obstacle for the aircraft with the following conditions. Temperature of 80 degrees Fahrenheit, elevation of 2,500 feet, landing weight of 1,600 pounds, headwind component 12 knots, and runway is dry grass. So we're gonna be using the columns that are to clear 50-foot obstacles. So not the ground roll, we want 50-foot obstacle. Then we wanna find which, you know, pressure altitude and temperature we want to use. So our elevation is 2,500 feet. So we're going to use the 2,500 feet column. And we're going to assume that that is the pressure altitude because it doesn't tell us any information for that, right? You can usually do this on the FA written exam. It doesn't give you the information. You can just assume that that's what it is. So the altitude is a pressure altitude, right? So we're going to look for the total to clear 50 foot obstacle column under the 2,500 feet and 50 degrees Fahrenheit. But our temperature is 80 degrees Fahrenheit, so we're 30 degrees above that temperature. So if we remember the note, it said to increase the distance by 10% for each 60 degrees Fahrenheit temperature increase above standard. The ones listed, the temperatures listed are the standard temperatures. So again, something you kinda gotta know and assume. So our gross weight is only weight listed for this table is 1,600 pounds, so that's good. We follow that row for 1600 pounds. We go to the 2500 feet and 50 degrees Fahrenheit. We look in the column for total to clear 50 foot obstacle and we have 1135 feet. But now we need to manipulate this a little bit. Our temperature is 30 degrees above standard. The note says increase 10% for each 60 degrees Fahrenheit above standard. So we're 30 degrees above Fahrenheit. So instead of increasing by 10%, we'd increase that by half. This is kind of a little interpolation. So half of 10, percent is 5% so we're going to increase that number by 5% so one way you can do this is type find what point zero five times 1135 is that gives you 5% of it and then add that number to 1135 so if we do that then we're going to get about 1192 now if you're listening to Online Ground School, I did it in a different order than what I'm saying out loud. I did the adjustment for headwind first. So it's going to be a little bit different, but we'll here in audio, we're going to do the adjustment for headwind next. So we did the adjustment. We added 5% for our 30 degree above standard temperature. And now what we need to do is we need to look at the next note because we have a 12 knot headwind. So it says for each four knots of headwind, Decrease the distance by 10% so we have 12 knots of headwinds. So we have three times that many So instead of decreasing by 10% we need to decrease by 30% so we find what 30% of? 1192 is so we do 1192 times point three that's 357 and a half so 1192 minus 357 gives us 835 so when we reduce that by 30% we get 835 feet, but we are not yet finished. The third note tells us to increase the distance by another 20% if the runway is a dry grass runway. This describes our runway. And so we also need to increase our value one last time by 20%. So we take 835, we multiply that by 0.2, and that's going to give us 167. Then we add that to 835 that's going to give us about 1,001 feet. So that is our final answer after manipulating for all those non-standard conditions. All right. so there's one more example in here for using the crosswind and headwind component graph. I wanted to show the members in the online ground school how to use that graph if they didn't like the cosine or sine for the FA written exam. If they didn't want to use trig, they have this available on the FA written exam. This crosswind component graph. It's figure 36 in the FAA airman testing supplement, which you'll get on the FAA written exam. So we show you guys exactly how to do that in the ground school. I believe we show it to you in the video that I'm putting in the show notes as well. So you guys can check that out in the show notes, watch that video and get up to snuff on how to do that and prepare yourself for the FAA written. All right, this has been a long lesson, but we finally did it. All right. I am so glad to be done with cross country planning. Holy smokes, you have no idea if, and I know if I'm glad. You guys are super, super glad. So, again, in the online ground school, there's two more lessons, and there are more examples in this lesson. the The ground school is jam packed with examples because that's the best way I learned. So I just put so many examples in the ground school. So I'm gonna record those examples. Uh, you know, more practice with the paper E6B, more practice. Uh, with an electronic E6B, so I'll show you how to use the electronic E6B in a bunch of examples. I'm going to record those audios, plus some more examples of takeoff and landing performance for our ground school members, which they can they listen to in their bonus course for the audio lessons or attached to these lessons, whichever they choose. But for the podcast, the next episode is going to be, we're moving on to section 13 of the course, which is all about before takeoff procedures. It's a short section. It's four lessons. Uh, it's pre-flight assessment, flight deck management, engine starting, and taxiing. There are some FA written questions around these areas, and these are things that on your checkride you're going to need to nail. This is the first sort of thing that your examiner is really testing you on in terms of you know your, your practical checkride portion. So you really want to make a good impression on these things and have these things nailed down. So although it's a short short section, it's a very, very important section as they all are. But, man, I'm excited we're done with costume and Woo! Let's go. Okay, thank you guys for listening so, 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 so much. And, again, please leave a review. It helps us out so much. Please subscribe on YouTube. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever it is. It really, really helps us get seen and noticed and helps us out. So, appreciate you guys, and thank you for listening. Hey guys, it's Nick. I wanna take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is, you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training after Three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times. And then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot. Now, of course, it's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations. a plane for the first time, everything's great and damn. but once you get into you know, bad weather flying or flying at heavy, heavily trafficked airports or speaking with ATC for Bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight, things get a little more advanced, and when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts, you're going to hit a wall, you're going to start to get behind the aircraft. And when this happens, Here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said, I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. When I say modern day student pilot, I just say modern day part-time student pilot, because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24/7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job, or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And So how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community, form study groups, get questions answered 24 seven. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take, and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA check ride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts. The way we explain things in plain written English and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on Online Ground School, and we'll see you inside the Online Ground School. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.